welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. So I was asked for the second half to talk specifically on the topic of euthanasia. So that's going to be the focus of the next uh, little while. Um, but it's not going to be just about euthanasia. I've kind of called this presentation a Christian response to suffering. Um, focusing in on the topic of euthanasia, but also going a little, a little broader than that. And I want to start um, by playing a video. It's actually a fairly long video. It's like 12 minutes long. Um, we'll skip part of it, but we'll watch most of it. Um, and, but the purpose of playing it is because the topic of euthanasia, I will talk about euthanasia mostly just from a, like using my head, like a rational conversation about it. Um, but most of the time, euthanasia is not a rational conversation or something. It's something that comes from the heart. Like it's an emotional thing. And if we're actually going to be able to talk about euthanasia and understand why people want this and why there's heated discussions on it, um, I do want to uh, give everyone a taste of some of the emotions that are behind all of this. So I'm going to play um, this video. Um, it's actually, uh, I, uh, I remember, the reason I'm playing it is it's actually put on, made by TSN. It was playing, I think, during one of the World Juniors hockey, playoff, hockey tournaments a couple of years ago. But it was so even impactful for me. It was like, okay, I remembered it already like three or four years ago that they put this on. I'm like, this is a good story kind of to start this on. So I'm going to uh, play this video. Um, it doesn't talk about euthanasia. It talks about another thing. But the, po the purpose of showing it is to kind of illustrate how people suffer and why people might consider euthanasia. Uh, and just a heads up, I think it's all right. It was on public TV, but some of them, like there are some um, graphic images of his condition. So if you're squeamish, just be forewarned. Okay. I'm just 
just going to leave it there because uh, the rest of it talks about how he uh, goes to a hockey game and is honored there. Um, so I show that because it really brings up the whole whole range of human emotions, uh, uh, sadness, uh, pity, empathy, um, but even from maybe the mother's perspective, like the, the care that goes, goes in to, to help manage that suffering. And I'm sure as many of us can agree that Jonathan is probably stronger than a lot of us might be. And he's stronger than a lot of other Canadians. And he every day wakes up and does the, the hard task of continuing to choose to, to live. Uh, but there's many Canadians who've decided um, that's not how they want to live. They want to take um, what sometimes they call the easy way out. And that easy way is euthanasia. So prior to 2015, we didn't allow euthanasia in this country. We said that you, there, that easy way out of suffering to, to end your life is not something that is right. It's not something that is morally right, and not something that we're going to encourage people to think about, much less do. So originally, there were two parts in Canada's law, the criminal code, that talked about not just euthanasia, but anything. Section 241, um, said that anyone who helps or abets or aids someone to commit suicide commits an offense. And even section 14 said that no one can consent to death being inflicted on them. So together it said that there's, there's no way that someone can end your life, even if you ask for it. But then there's, there are two people, Kay Carter and Gloria Taylor. Uh, they were two, suffer two adults. I believe they were suffering from ALS or another condition. Maybe think of something that Jonathan had. And they challenged those provisions in court and say that though the prohibition on euthanasia violates their, their rights. And so that case went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with them in what they called it the Carter decision. So in the Carter decision, um, they said that those two sections of the Criminal Code, 14 and 241, are of no force and effect to the extent that they prohibit physician-assisted death for a competent adult person who, one, clearly consents to the termination of life, and two, has a previous and irremediable medical conditioning that causes enduring suffering that is intolerable to the individual in the circumstances of his and her condition. So those were basically the two things you needed to get through euthanasia. You had to consent to it, and you had to have suffering that you think you couldn't endure. And the court said, basically, that they thought that a blanket ban on euthanasia violated the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. That's Section 7 of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, that's how they reasoned. I look at that and say, I write to life being reinterpreted to mean a right to death is entirely flipping the law and what the law says on its head. But nonetheless, um, they mo mo mostly focus on the idea of liberty and the security of the person, meaning that they said people should be free to do what they want to do. An idea of freedom or autonomy that is not bounded by morality, is not bounded by God's law, but it's internal to each person. So the Carter decision said that we're going to strike this, this law down. At the same time, they said that the risks inherent in permitting physician-assisted death can be identified and very clearly and very substantially minimized through a carefully designed system of safeguards 
imposing stringent limits that are scrupulously monitored, monitored and enforced. So he said, we're not going to prohibit euthanasia in blanketly, but because we, we can design a good enough system that vulnerable people aren't going to take advantage of it or be taken advantage of. But is that even possible? Can we even make that system of safeguards that are actually going to work? And the answer is no. One, one reason is just purely philosophical and, and logical. If you move that line about when it's appropriate to kill, if you go past that sixth commandment, you shall not kill, that's a hard line. Do not kill. It's pretty cut and dry. But if you go to some, but you, if you move that standard, well, where else are you going to draw a line that's consistent? Um, you'll throughout the, hear at the presentation a couple of these, these lines that the courts and parliament tries to draw. Things like intolerable suffering, or reasonably foreseeable death, or informed consent. Well, all of those are concepts, but why would we stop there? And how do you interpret them? What does reasonably foreseeable mean? Um, is the suffering that's intolerable to me intolerate, intolerable to someone else? Like, how do you draw that line? And it's not just a philosophical question either, because we have real world evidence that other countries that have euthanized euthanasia, their safeguards don't work. Belgium was one of the first countries that legalized euthanasia. And there was a, there was a 2010 study by the CMK Medical Association that found that 31% of euthanasia deaths in Belgium were done without the request of the patient. Without the request of the patient. If you remember, Canada's court said one of the things that has to be fulfilled in order for you to have euthanasia is to consent to that. But obviously in Belgium, that's not always the case. They found a further half of euthanasia deaths went unreported. That there was no documentation. They don't know why this person died. People doing it under the table. All sorts of different reasons why euthanasia was not being reported. So when you see statistics coming out of countries like Belgium and maybe some other jurisdictions as well, they say, to the best of our knowledge, this is how many euthanasia deaths happen this year. But in reality, there might be many, many more that happen that we just don't know about. Um, another story of how the safeguards don't work is uh, this story. Uh, in Belgium, this is uh, two brothers, Mark and Eddie Verbessem. They were, they were deaf, and they lived and worked together. And in 2013, the Belgian doctors, they euthanized both of them because not only were they deaf, but they were starting to go blind. And rather than going without being able to communicate with each other, I mean, if you're deaf, they can communicate through sign language, but if you were deaf and blind, it is virtually impossible to communicate. Um, they said, rather than not being able to communicate with each other, that they wanted to end their lives. Otherwise, other than that, they were perfectly healthy, and Belgium's law didn't allow for just simply being tired of life as a, or as a reason for euthanasia. And yet, the Belgian doctors said, yeah, we'll find a way to wiggle around the safeguards, wiggle around the law, and make it possible that you guys can die. So safeguards might be, might be well-intentioned, whether in Belgium or in Canada, but there are lots of examples of people getting around these safeguards, because ultimately, you, there's no way you can draw another consistent line, a, a reasonable line, about when we should protect life and when it's permissible to end it. 
So going back to the historical discussion, so the Supreme Court of Canada struck down Canada's law on euthanasia, and then it basically said to Parliament, okay, you have the opportunity to draft a new law on euthanasia. So that's what the Parliament of Canada did. They went back and they passed Bill C-14. So this was the Canada's first law that uh, legalized euthanasia officially. And it legalized euthanasia for patients suffering from an incurable illness whose naturally de natural death was reasonably foreseeable. Now, they didn't define reasonably foreseeable. Um, maybe some people, as they were passing law, thought that meant maybe this applies to a cancer patient and they have a prognosis of weeks to live or maybe months to live. But over the course of time, we saw doctors interpreting this as, yeah, you have a year to live. You might have three years to live. You might have five years to live. And because we can give an estimate of when your death is, we're going to count you as reasonably foreseeable and make you eligible for euthanasia. But then the back and forth between Parliament and the courts continued. So that law was passed in 2014. And then a couple of years later, uh, another couple of uh, Canadian um, uh, people, um, John Shrushan and Miriam Gladue, they challenged that law, that Bill C-14. So they, they were also suffering from um, uh, uh, illnesses. Um, maybe they were the ones who were suffering from ALS. I forget exactly off the top of my head. Um, but because their death was not reasonably foreseeable, think of that, uh, that uh, uh, video of Jonathan. He suffered from a condition that wasn't going to kill him anytime soon. His death wasn't reasonably foreseeable. But unlike Jonathan, they wanted to end their life. So they argued in, in court that they should be allowed to access euthanasia. And then the courts came back and said, yeah, we, we agree with you. We're going to strike down that, that law. We're going we're gonna to say that Bill C-14, again, violated the, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. But then the court went even further. And he was a really, a really problematic line of argument and of reasoning, and it said that the, the bill violated the equal protection under the law. So they essentially said that you're discriminating against people against who is allowed to die and who isn't allowed to die. There's discrimination there. Remember how I said, like, where else are you going to draw the line? Well, any line that you draw, you're going to be discriminating against some people and, or discriminating against other people. So if the court keeps following this line of reasoning in the future, there's no conceivable end to when euthanasia should not be allowed. Because then you're always going to be discriminating against someone. So as a result of this decision, the government goes back to drawing boards like, OK, we're going to try to pass a new law. So they passed Bill C-7. This was in 2001. And so they furthered the legalization of euthanasia to those with incurable illnesses whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. So now there are two tracks or two groups of people. If your death is reasonably foreseeable, if there's, you're going to die in the near future, you can have euthanasia, and you can get it pretty fast. There's almost no safeguards left anymore on that. If your death is not reasonably foreseeable, there's more safeguards. For instance, do you have to wait uh, a longer time in order to make sure this is what you really want? Um, you have to have more medical practitioners offer you care and different types of care, different things, um, but yet it's still legal in that case. 
But one thing at the very end, right before the bill was passed, so in order for a bill to come passed, it has to go through the House of Commons, five steps, and it has to go through the Senate, go through five steps. And so it passed the House of Commons, and then Senate decided at the last moment, we're going to include a different clause in here. Um, we're going to include a clause that's going to legalize euthanasia for patients suffering from mental illnesses. So before, you, had just, you must have had a physical ailment, a physical illness, physical disability. They said, no, we're going to expand it to people with mental illness. But we're not going to do it quite yet because there might be some problems with doing that. No doubt. Uh, so we're, that clause is going to come into effect two years after the passage of that law. So Bill C-7 was passed on March 17th, 2021. You do the math, euthanasia for mental illness is going to become legal in exactly 10 days. In 10 days, those who have a mental illness, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, who knows what exactly, what will be allowed and what won't, they will be considered for euthanasia. But, so that's the last law that was passed on euthanasia, but it's definitely not the end of the story recently. So that was two years ago, and since then we've continued to see this come up more and more often in the news and in public policy. So some examples, um, earlier this summer, or last summer, there was a veteran who suffered from PTSD. He called veteran services and said, I, I need help with my PTSD, I am, I'm suffering, I'm reaching out to the government because the federal government has a lot of things for, for veterans. And the caseworker on the other end of the phone said, well, maybe you should just consider euthanasia. And I don't know what happened to this veteran at the end of the day, but the, the media got a hold of this story and they started re realizing it's like, holy moly, like this is not the way that we should be operating as a country. We should not providing are offered euthanasia to every time someone comes to us and is suffering. And so that was one story that happened last summer. And then a little bit later, there, the committee, a federal committee was studying Canada's euthanasia law. There's a, there's a mandatory clause in, in Bill C-7 and C-14 actually, that every five years the law gets reviewed and, and studied to see, well, what changes could be made. Um, and while this committee was listening to testimony and different experts, um, they heard from, um, from a one Dr. Waugh. So here's what Dr. Waugh suggested when he testified before that parliamentary committee. In case we didn't catch that, he's suggesting that we should explore euthanasia for infants. For infants that have a, some sort of disability because they they're not going to have a quality life or they're not going to be alive for much longer, so we might as well end their life now. That's what he suggested before the Canadian um, Euthanasia Committee. Thankfully, in government, there are still some people who think, no, that's a problem. Even though it's been the Liberals who have been passing all these laws on euthanasia, um, the Federal Disability Minister, Carla Qualtro, um, she took a stand and said, no, that's, that's not acceptable. She said that I find that suggestion to expand this to infants, completely shocking and unacceptable. I would never support going down that road. So at least in response to this crazy suggestion to expand euthanasia, this federal minister said, no, that's not a path, that's not a road that I'm going to go down. 
I'd be curious to know what her reasoning and rationale is because, well, why would you draw the line there? Why would you draw the line there? But after, as a result of all these stories and some, some of these advocates pushing for too far, um, the government last December, they decided and realized like, okay, we are probably pushing things a little bit too fast on this whole expansion of euthanasia thing. So in December, the federal justice minister said that they were going to put a pause on the expansion of euthanasia to those with mental illnesses. So in the winter, over Christmas, Parliament doesn't sit. Parliament came back at the end of January. The government introduced a bill saying, okay, that, that clause is going to allow euthanasia for those with mental illnesses. That's going to come to, into effect in March 17. Well, we're going to introduce a bill that delays that for one more year. We're going to push it off one more year to give us a little bit more time to see if we can figure out some of the details. So they introduced that law, passed through uh, House of Commons, but the Senate still needs to pass it. Which could, and they have 10 days to pass for it to pass through the Senate and for the Governor General to sign it into a law. So unless the Senate gets their act together and acts right away, we could have a very bizarre situation where in 10 days, euthanasia for someone for, with ment a mental illness could be legal for a day or five days or a month. And then it goes back to being illegal once the Senate decides, if the Senate decides to pass this bill. But beyond that, it, there's been encouraging recently that more and more politicians and political parties are starting to get on board and realize that this expansion is going way too far. So the Conservative Party, for example, they have a policy handbook which outlines like all the, the positions that the party has on a variety of topics. And they say straight up that the party in principle opposes euthanasia. But they never wanted to really talk about this issue. It wasn't something that they thought was politically winsome or that thought they thought that was very important. So they really never talked about it. But a couple weeks ago, one conservative member of parliament, um, Ed Fast from Abbotsford actually, he just introduced a, a private member's bill. So each member of parliament has the opportunity, one time per parliament, to introduce his, their own law on a topic they think that's important. So Ed Fast picked this topic and his proposal is to take that clause that allows euthanasia for mental illness and strike it from the law entirely. Not delay it by one year, not delay it by five years, but to strike it entirely. So hopefully, hopefully members of other political parties will realize that's the same thing to do and support the bill and pass that bill and stop the advance of euthanasia there. One thing that is difficult though is that Private members' bills, those that the private members get to introduce, sometimes they pass, but I would say probably only about one in one in 25 of those bills ever gets passed. Because the government is always trying to focus on the bills they want passed, the issues they want to talk about, and so there's not as much, there's no certainty at all that this private member's bill is going to necessarily go anywhere. So that's where we are right now on the topic of euthanasia here in Canada. As, le as long as it's talking about like the legal aspect, what's legally allowed, what's Canadian public policy saying on this. Um, 
And I'm just talking about euthanasia, I could stop there. But I, like I said at the beginning, I want to go a little bit further than that. I do want to talk, uh, there's the Bill C-39, the government's bill on this, uh, C-14, Ed Fast's bill uh, striking it. But I do want to go a little further than that and talk just a little bit more about what is a Christian response to suffering. Now, I should go without saying that Christians should always be supportive of helping the suffering or helping the sufferer, sorry, relieving the suffering instead of eliminating the sufferer entirely. It's the suffering that is bad. It's not the person who is suffering that needs to be eliminated. So when you look through scripture, uh, we see this fairly clearly all over the place. Of course, where you see it the most, when you talk about uh, you should not, shall not kill, one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You also see it, uh, for example, if you know the story of the death of Saul, he's wounded. An Amalekite comes and asks, asks him to kill him. And so the Amalekite basically euthanizes Saul. And David's response to that is, no, I'm going to execute you because that is not an appropriate way to end someone's life. Even if they ask for it, even if they're suffering. You put your hand to a human life, and especially the king of Israel, that deserves a death penalty. Job also talks about how in God's hands is life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And of course, Jesus, when he's talking in the Sermon of the Mount, says that human lives are far more, a far more worth than, than a, a, a sparrow's. And that really gets us to the reason why Christians, we fundamentally think that euthanasia, and for that matter, abortion, or all sorts of other methods of killing, why it's fundamentally wrong. And it's because each and every person is made in the image of God. Nothing can erase that fact. There are lots of pro-euthanasia advocates that say we should allow dying, medical aid and dying euthanasia, so that people can die with dignity. They can die before they need all sorts of different help or they're not independent anymore. <clears throat> they think that dignity is something that can be lost. But from a Christian perspective, the greatest dignity comes from being made in the image of God. And that's not something that we can lose. It's not like we have, let's, uh, let's be euthanized before we lose that image of God, because that's not how it works. <clears throat> and that's why we think that life is always worth protecting because everyone has that image of, of God in them. Sorry, I got something in my throat. But what does that mean about, uh, how does that influence the question of suffering? Um, if Christians are opposed to assisted suicide, does that mean we support suffering? Like, uh, in terms of public policy, like, what, what do we do here? Some people just focus on, let's say, let's make euthanasia illegal and just leave it there. But that still leaves the suffering like the suffering Jonathan experienced, that still leaves that there. So it's not a dichotomy between suffering and euthanasia, but instead we need to be focusing on trying to come up with good care. Particularly, we talk a lot at ARPA about the idea of palliative care. So palliative care, um, in case you're unfamiliar with the term, palliative care was founded, uh, this idea or concept of practice, was founded by uh, Dr. Cicely Saunders. She really pioneered the work in palliative care and started the first uh, hospice care unit in, in, the, in the UK uh, about 50 years ago. And she kind of 
got into the work of palliative care because she said, uh, there's, she has the famous quote that you matter because you are you. You matter to the last moment of your life and we will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but to live until you die. And that's the motto for palliative care, to live with dignity, not to die with dignity, but to live with dignity. So palliative care helps to try to manage pain symptoms as much as possible to help people live. So in that, that story uh, of Jonathan, um, you saw, it's not quite palliative care, but you saw all the work and all the care that his mother poured into him to make sure that he could live, that he could live as well as possible. So that's basically the equivalent of palliative care in other circumstances. It's especially used for people who are going through cancer um, to help them in the end of their life. And part of the definition of palliative care is that it either hastens death, but it isn't, doesn't also tend or try to artificially prolong life. It's about trying to help people live as well as possible until God decides it's time to take them home and that their time on earth is done. That's, uh, so that's palliative care, and that's why, as an organization as ARPA, we've done a lot of kind of work advocating for and talking about palliative care and care in general. Uh, those are just some of the uh, more descriptions about palliative care that I talked about. Um, so on our website, we are on, as an organization, we write something called policy reports every once in a while on different topics. And a couple of our most recent ones were on the topic of palliative care and elder care focusing not just on the topic of euthanasia, but on the flip side, okay, there's a suffering, how do we best as a society care for the sufferer? Rather than just trying to eliminate the sufferer, we need to care for them. And palliative care or elder care, two options there. And they're part of a larger program that we've, uh, a larger campaign that we've called Care Not Kill. Um, I have an example. Do I want to go through that yet? Uh, I'll leave it. Um, so I had something else. So this is the Care Not Kill campaign, some of the flyers that uh, we use there. And I'm going to, I think I have some images more Did towards you? that. I'm going to skip that. This is the Care Not Kill campaign, focusing on both of those halves. Euthanasia, suicide prevention, plus care, plus palliative care, elder care, and all sorts of other care. So in the last couple of years, focus of the campaign from our perspective has really been focusing on that mental illness clause. And so we looked basically at the Canada's entire euthanasia law and said, okay, well, what parts of it are the most extreme or the parts that Canadians generally are not going to support the most? And that offering of euthanasia to those with mental illnesses was the one that we focused on. So we started organizing just general Christian people to start being active on this topic. And that's kind of what we specialize as an organization, finding ways that individual Christian Canadians can be involved in politics. So as part of this Care Not Kill campaign, we did all sorts of action items. Um, we helped people deliver about, this says 30,000, um, but this was actually a couple of years ago old. We've now delivered over 200,000 of these flyers to throughout communities, raising awareness about this is what's going on in Canada. Most people don't know what's going on when we're talking about euthanasia. So we're trying to raise awareness that this is the road that we're going down as, as a Canadian society and how 
it is not the direction that a compassionate society wants to go down. So over 200,000 of these flyers have gone out. Um, we have a system called Easy Mail that helps people write letters to their representatives. So the uh, 3,579 people sent a letter to the member of parliament talking about this issue. Um, when that Bill C-7 was passing, 72 members of our community sat down and lobbied and talked to members of parliament trying to explain why we need palliative care and care instead of euthanasia. Uh, more people were involved in calling MPs during this that campaign, not just meeting with them. Um, so that's the type of actions that we try to get people involved in doing for this care and not kill campaign. And so right now, as an organization, we have a lobby strategy. We're doing a lot of work kind of behind the scenes, trying to push back and prevent euthanasia from being expanded to any more people. Um, but there's some things that everyone here and everyone else in, in Canada can also do to be involved on this, on this issue. First one is to pray. I kind of talked about this one in the last presentation as well. Pray because we need a lot of prayer to prevent further expansion. And then also continue to help us to raise awareness on this topic. You can, uh, I didn't, I should, I should have brought some with me. Um, but we, you can go online to that Care Not Kill website and you can order flyers and then you can go and be a part of that whole strategy and the whole campaign to try to reach as many people as possible to raise awareness on that. You can use the flyers there. You can just have conversations with people. I know some people have set up uh, just at a mall or a park or something like that. Just try to engage people in conversation on this topic. Just in general, we need to raise more awareness on this topic. And then write to your member of parliament on this as well. And sometimes we encourage people to do this generically. Here we actually have two things that are tangible to point for. Um, well, it passed that, that government bill on euthanasia has already passed the House of Commons. So you don't need to write to your MP on that one. But it'd be really great for everyone to write to their member of parliament and all members of parliament, frankly, support that private member's bill, that one that, suppose, that suggests that we not expand euthanasia to those mental illness entirely. That is something that really needs support. Because like I said, those private members' bills don't pass that often. And so we need to have make sure there's a lot of support for that if we do want that to eventually pass. So I'm going to wrap things up by uh, just a couple statistics and, and a scripture verse. Um, in 2021, 10,000 people chose to end their life through euthanasia. When the, the year, first year euthanasia was legalized, 2016, it's only a thousand people. You can see how this keeps on growing. Every single year it keeps growing. And if we keep expanding access to euthanasia to more and more people, that's going to continue to grow higher and higher. Um, when I was doing this presentation in, in a place in northern BC, like 10,000 people, that's like the equivalent to entire cities, entire communities up there just basically being wiped off the map through euthanasia. Um, the latest statistics I had seen, I believe it was, 5.4% um, of all deaths in Canada are now by euthanasia. It's about 1 in 20 is from euthanasia. And BC actually leads the province in that regard. Because we have an older population, because we have a more secular population, there are more and more people in our province that choose euthanasia compared to any other province. And so that's why we need to be really involved on this. And then also from a Christian perspective, just to read one more scripture verse, 
this is one that we talk about a lot and use, use a lot for this Care Not Kill campaign because it's so, uh, so pertinent. But Proverbs 24, verse 12 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those stumbling towards the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does he not who weighs the heart perceive it? Does, he who, does, he, does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? This is a topic, like every topic, but this topic especially isn't one where we can just claim ignorance. It's like we didn't know what was going on, and it's not, not something that we bear any responsibility for. The writer of Proverbs says something very different, that we do have responsibility for those stumbling towards the slaughter. And so we need to be active as Christians, as Canadians, to push back against it as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on Politics and the Christian Worldview. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proleum. If you'd like to know more about the New Antioch Institute, you can email us admin at newantiochinstitute.com. And we're also on Facebook and you can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Thanks again. Take care.